I mean, he was fighting a constant two-front battle, not just against the communists, but against his enemies within the U.S. government bureaucracy. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Sharon Weinberger, Executive Editor for News, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in Washington today, and joining me in the studio is FP Senior Correspondent Keith Johnson and Max Boot, Military Historian, Foreign Policy Analyst, and Author. He also served as an advisor to U.S. commanders in Iraq and Afghanistan and advised both John McCain and Mitt Romney's presidential campaigns, and he is currently a Senior Fellow in National Security Studies at the Council of Foreign Relations. His latest book, The Road Not Taken, Edward Lansdale and the American Tragedy in Vietnam, follows the life of of legendary CIA operative and former ad man who pioneered the hearts and minds strategy of the Vietnam War. In many ways, Edward Lansdale could be considered the father, at least the godfather, of modern counterinsurgency. Though his ideas have in some respects fallen out of favor, Max Boot provides one of the most sweeping authoritative but also positive histories of Lansdale's life and legacy. So I wanted to start out, if you could just give us the background of who Edward Lansdale is, was, and how he came into the position he came into in the 1950s. Well, thanks for having me on. Ed Lansdale was this legendary covert operative who was said to be the model for both the quiet American and the ugly American. Uh, He had gotten his start, as you mentioned very briefly, as an advertising man before World War II. Uh, Then he joined the OSS during World War II. And then as soon as the war was over, on behalf of the Army and then eventually the Air Force, he was sent to the Philippines, where Uh, Before long, he was working for the CIA and masterminding the defeat of this communist insurrection known as the Hook Rebellion. And that, in turn, uh, earned him a ticket to Saigon in the summer of 1954, right after the fall of Dien Bien Phu, where he was tasked with creating this new state of South Vietnam, which, remarkably enough, he did over the course of the next couple of years by cultivating a new disciple uh, named No Din Diem. Then Lansdale subsequently left uh, Vietnam and moved to Washington, where he worked at the Pentagon, was not very happy, even though he had an influence in shaping U.S. policy. Uh, And meanwhile, relations between the U.S. and and South Vietnam were were going south because devoid of Lansdale's influence, CM moved in a more dictatorial direction, and there was a showdown between the Kennedy administration and the ZM government, where uh, Lansdale counseled the Kennedys not to overthrow ZM, that the situation would get worse without him, he, he argued. His advice was ignored. ZM was overthrown, and the results were every bit as bad as, as Lansdale had predicted, eventually leading to the commitment of half a million American troops to Vietnam, something that Lansdale always opposed. And he constantly argued that we could not win the war through firepower, but his advice was ignored by General William Westmoreland, President Lyndon Johnson, and the other powers that be. And so by the time he left Vietnam for the, at the end of a second tour after the Tet Offensive in 1968, he was very dejected, demoralized, and defeated that his advice had not been taken. And so what I try to do in the book is basically to to tell his, his life story uh, and to suggest that he had another road that we could have taken in Vietnam and, and thus perhaps avoided some of the disasters uh, that we were engulfed in. So let's back up for a second and talk about the Philippines. And you, you spend quite a bit of time on it and talking about how important it was for building up Lansdale's legacy. I think even those of us with passing familiarity with Lansdale in the Philippines think more of the dirty tricks that he did. But you go beyond that to really talk about it as a success case. So can you first talk about what were the quote unquote dirty tricks that he's alleged to have used? And what is the more, what are the things he did that had a more profound impact on the Philippines? Well, the dirty tricks, which were certainly a huge part of the Lansdale legend, uh, 
you know, grew out of his interest in learning about local folkways and superstitions and music. And one of the things that he learned was that in the Philippines, uh, there was a lot of belief in these Aswang vampires who were supposed to haunt the countryside. And so he decided to mobilize these supernatural forces against the Hooks, the communist insurgents, and uh, made good this charade by having this Philippine army unit take this dead Hook uh, soldier and puncture a couple of holes in his neck to give the impression that he had been killed one, by one of these Aswang, by one of these vampires, and, and therefore instilled terror into that local Hook unit. And this is something that, you know, was immediately recounted at the CIA and has since become, you know, part of the, the Land, Lansdale Dirty Tricks repertoire. But what I suggest in the book is that what was actually far more important to his success was that he prioritized political action. And he worked through Ramon Magsai Sai, who was his protege as defense minister and then helped to get him elected president in 1953. And Magsai Sai was this incorruptible reformer who was very popular. And once he took office, that really took away the hook's support and they essentially gave up their struggle because they understood that they could achieve reform through the political process. They no longer had to achieve reform uh, at gunpoint. Keith, I know when you and I talked about this part of the book, you mentioned that what was so amazing and the larger legacy of Lansdale is he had no language skills. I mean, we think of experts as people who go and learn the language, but he didn't, but was still able to operate effectively in the Philippines. That's absolutely true. And of course, he was helped by the fact that a lot of Filipinos do speak English, thanks to our half-century occupation of that country. He was able to be very effective in Vietnam, though, even though very few people in the 50s spoke English. Later, when he went back in the 60s, more people did speak English, but he worked through translators. And those translators were very important uh, in both, and I would say not just language translators, but also kind of cultural translators. And I think one of the most important and unsung uh, uh, people in, in the story of Ed Lansdale was Pat Kelly, uh, who was this Philippine war widow that he met in 1945 and who was from the same parts of Luzon where the hooks were located. And she became his guide, taking him into the, into the, into the, into the backcountry of the Philippines to meet with the hooks. And as they went on these adventures, a friendship developed and before long a romance. And she became one of the most important people in his life. They had a long, passionate love affair. Eventually, many years later, after his first wife died, he married Pat. She moved to the United States and she became his second wife. But she was, you know, I was able to really restore, I think, Pat Kelly to her place of importance in the Ed Lansdale story, whereas previously she had been entirely hidden. And, and I was lucky enough to get my hands on the love letters that Ed and Pat wrote to one another, which uh, provide this biographical goldmine, this this window into his innermost thinking that nobody else has ever had before. And I think one of the things that emerges from that is just how important Pat Kelly was in immersing him in, in Philippine culture and helping to understand the people of the Philippines. And that in turn set up his greatest success in the Philippines, where he figured out how to address the political and social roots of the rebellion instead of just trying to bomb the rebels into oblivion. Well, I just wanted to, to grab onto that point for one second, because we mentioned Ramon Magsaysay, his protege there. Uh, you mentioned Pat Kelly, who was so close. I, didn't she go to, to the same high school as the, as the Hook leader? I mean, there yeah, was Luis Haruk, yeah. Okay. So, I mean, so there were a couple of individuals that, that were in his corner that were unique. Then there was the, the actual physical geography of the Philippines being an archipelago, sort of isolated. And so um, the Philippines was the, the sort of the keystone of the Lansdale legend, but 
in terms of like counterinsurgency, it seems like there are an awful lot of unique conditions there that didn't necessarily prevail elsewhere. I mean, so how how seriously should we take the Philippines as sort of a, a textbook case, or was it more of a lucky bank shot? Well, it was probably both. I mean, certainly the conditions were favorable there, just as they were, I might add, in Malaya at the same time, where Field Marshal Templar also became a counterinsurgency legend by defeating another communist insurgency, which also did not have the same kind of outside backing as the as the Viet Minh and later the Viet Cong had in, in Vietnam. So there's no question that conditions were favorable because the insurgents didn't have that outside support. And of course, he understood the Philippines and, and Filipinos are, were generally favorably predisposed towards Americans. And so not all these conditions would be replicated in places like Vietnam. But, you know, I would still stress that in 1950, when Ed Lansdale was sent to the Philippines, very few people in Washington imagined that we were going to shortly win a victory without having to commit any American troops. This was still one of the signal American victories in the Cold War achieved by a small band of advisors without putting Americans on the front lines. And it was not something that people expected to have happen in 1950, and it would not necessarily have happened if, if Ed Lansdale had not been there. There was a widespread fear in 1950 that the Hooks would, in fact, take over the Philippines, and the Joint Chiefs of Staff were contemplating sending multiple army divisions uh, to fight in the Philippines. And mercifully, that did not happen because Lansdale and his small team of of secret uh, agents uh, proved so adept in manipulating uh, Filipino politics in, in, in a positive direction. I wanted to ask a larger question about that. Um, you really portray Lansdale in the book quite effectively as someone who believed deeply in American ideals and in democratic institutions and more than other people in the CIA or even other parts of U.S. government that he his relationship with these politicians was also about fostering their interest in democracy. Yet at the same time, he was interfering in, guiding, paying off other people's political systems. Do you think it is ultimately possible um, to reconcile those two things of trying to foster democratic institutions while at the same time you're the CIA and you're interfering in other people's democratic institutions? Yeah, there's no question that there is an inherent tension uh, between those roles. I mean, the way that Lansdale thought about his own role was that he said, you know, these you had these insurgents who were interfering in the politics of the local country. And the only way to defeat them was to take an active role in politics, that it wasn't enough just to fight them on the battlefield. But there's no question that what he was doing was tremendously controversial, even at the time within the U.S. government. He had many, many opponents within the CIA, the State Department, the Pentagon, and other agencies who didn't think that it was his job to be a kingmaker in the Philippines or in Vietnam. Now, the most important people, those who counted the most in the 50s, John Foster Dulles and Alan Dulles took a very different view. Uh, they, along with President Eisenhower, believed that the United States should have this kind of covert action capability. And as we know, they mobilized it in, in, in Iran to, uh, to help overthrow Mossadegh. They mobilized Ed Lansdale in the Philippines to bolster Magsaysay and then in, in Vietnam to bolster ZM. Uh, and they clearly thought that this was in America's interest because it was a way to achieve uh, the, the results that we wanted to keep the communists out of power, but without sending large numbers of American combat troops. Uh, but that, as I say, that capability was, was controversial at the time and became more so uh, years later, especially with the revelations in the 1970s when people first learned about a lot of these CIA covert actions, which included, and of course, not just political action, but also assassination plots against leaders like Fidel Castro. And, and you know, Lansdale himself was, was, was tarred by, by those revelations. 
uh, because one of the lesser-known aspects of his career, which I bring out in the book, is the fact that in uh, 1962, he had run Operation Mongoose, which was the Kennedy administration effort to overthrow or, or, or kill Castro. Uh, so, you know, there's always going to be, I think, uh, debate and controversy over to what extent the U.S. should and, and, and can be effectively involved in other nations' politics. Um, and there's no, I don't think there's any right answer. I think it really depends on, on the local circumstances. But I do think that, you know, Lansdale's larger insight is accurate that uh, unless we can somehow help these countries uh, to create more stable, legitimate, responsive governments, we're never going to win lasting victories against against these insurgents that you just can't uh, defeat them with a purely military approach. Well, let me challenge you a bit on that. So you talk about the 1956 referendum um, in Vietnam, where it's Prime Minister Diem and the and the Emperor, and you know Lansdale kind of plans a dirty trick, where I believe that the um, at Diem's ballots were going to be in a festive red color, correct, and the Emperor instead of a dour green, right. And it was a little bit of not quite corruption, but pushing things, and then Diem turned it into this huge corrupt. Landslide, right. but even in Lansdale's sort of more moderate—I don't know if you want to call it—corrupt approach. I mean, is that really the route to democracy? Would CM really have had a road to a stable Vietnam government? Well, that's—I mean—that's a great question. I, I, you know, I will say that at the time in the '40s and '50s, uh, U.S. policymakers viewed themselves as being involved in this death struggle against the communists. They saw that the that the communists, uh, with with Soviet and eventually Chinese support, were very active in fostering these movements, uh, trying to, you know, foment communist insurrections in these various countries, and so they felt free to strike back via the political process. As we know, in the 1940s, the CIA was very active in supporting anti-communist forces in elections in Japan, Italy, and elsewhere. And this was kind of part of of the order of the day. And so what, you know, what Lansdale was doing in the Philippines and, uh, and Vietnam, which was, again, even controversial even at the time, but it was, it was kind of the dominant, one of the dominant approaches of U.S. Uh, foreign policy. And I, I mean, I will say in his favor that he was not in favor of election fraud. I mean, he was not actually stuffing ballot boxes. And he suggested to ZM that he was kind of over-egging the pudding <laughs> by trying to win like a 98% uh, victory win if he'd had a totally free and fair election. He probably would have won 70, 80%, something like that. He was actually, he actually tried to restrain ZM from some of his autocratic and anti-democratic impulses with limited success. Uh, but he certainly believed in using psychological tricks. He certainly believed in basically advertising. And, you know, the, the paradigm of that is the way that he ran Mog Sai's 1953 presidential campaign in the Philippines, where, again, I mean, he guarded zealously against fraud. He did not want to engage in any kind of fraud. But certainly behind the scenes, he was doing a lot of things that you would not necessarily expect a CIA man to do, like, you know, writing Magsai Sai's campaign jingle or coming up with his <laughs> slogan, Magsai Sai is my guy, and doing all these other things that you would expect a political operative to do. But that's essentially how he viewed himself as, as being a political operative, which is not the way I would say most CIA officers uh, or military officers view their role. 
Let's talk for a second about Lansdale's relationship with Ziem. In, in, in contrast, you know, in the Philippines with Magsaysay, he had this very close, almost brotherly friendship relationship. And it was close with Ziem, but very different. Can you describe that? Yeah, it's again, this goes back to the point you were talking about earlier. It's hard to replicate everything he did in the Philippines. And Magsaysay was this charismatic guy, this man of the people. And on top of that, he became his closest brothers with, with Lansdale. They literally spoke the same language because, of course, Magsaysay was a fluent English speaker, whereas uh, ZM uh, only spoke uh, French and Vietnamese, and so Lionsdale had to work through a, a translator. And, you know, there were other obstacles, including the fact that ZM was very distrustful of outsiders. He only really relied on his family. Uh, he was kind of an aloof, scholarly, uh, kind of traditional, in some ways, Confucian Mandarin, who certainly did not see his role as campaigning for votes or, you know, asking, you know, winning popular support. Uh, and so, you know, Lansdale had much more obstacles in trying to uh, turn ZM into an effective political leader. But in some ways, that makes even more impressive what he managed to achieve between 1954 and 1956, where he really masterminded uh, the consolidation of the ZM regime against the host of enemies. And it wasn't just the communists, it was also the French, it was these uh, various religious and criminal sects who controlled tens of thousands of militia fighters. You know, in the summer of 1954, very few people imagined that ZM would last nine weeks, much less nine years. And the fact that he was able to consolidate his authority over the next few years owes a lot to the fact that uh, he Lansdale actually got CM to listen to him at least for a few years and and do some of the things that he that he said and that included trying to be more man of the people go out in the provinces meet the local people get out of the palace uh, Lansdale was even encouraging ZM uh, to hook up with with the one woman that he'd ever been interested in, in his life because ZM was this very had had once dreamed of becoming a uh, a priest. Uh, he was a very devout Catholic. He was very aloof. Uh, and so Z, uh, Lansdale was suggesting, hey, you know, go see see that girl that you were interested in before, uh, and maybe sparks will blossom. But, uh, you know, ZM was, was such a reclusive figure. And even, and this is, actually tells you a lot about him, you know, as, as the president of the country, you know, he could have marched into her house with, with armed bodyguards and demanded to see her, but he was too reticent to, to even approach her as, as a normal person would, and, and it just never happened. But Lansdale was, you know, was always trying to push CM to be, to be more outgoing and gregarious and to, and to embrace the people more than he would ultimately be willing to do. Well, since the no, title of the... Go ahead. No, I was just going to follow up yeah. on that because you mentioned the, the enemies with the French. I mean, they, they tried to kill him repeatedly, I guess, and there were several times. He and, did not get along well with the <laughs> French, but it was, it was not, I mean... If you if you listen to what Lansdale and some of his aides had to say, they put all the blame on the French because, in their view, the French, you know, never really reconciled to to ending their colonial role in Vietnam and were still trying to exert predominant influence even after the defeat of Dien Bien Phu in the Geneva Conference, uh, and so. You know, Lansdale felt like the French were very paternalistic, very heavy-handed, and he wanted the Vietnamese to be free and independent. And there's a large element of truth to that. But, you know, the reality is, as I point out in the book, uh, you know, Lansdale was a bit of a Francophobe as well. I mean, he some of his aides got along much better with the French than he did. Uh, he did not help the relationship at all because he was so suspicious uh, of the French. And and so, you know, I think there's there's blame on both sides in his extremely dysfunctional relationship, which— 
at the same time did not justify the fact that you had junior French officers trying to kill him. But he also had enemies within the U.S. government, right? I mean, there were at different times, in, whether it was in the Philippines or in Vietnam or back in Washington, um, the bureaucratic infighting and, and the embassy in, in, um, in Vietnam. Uh, I mean, it seemed like he was often treated as a maverick or, or a dangerous element even with, by the U.S. government, right? That was really uh, Lansdale's uh, Achilles heel in many ways. The fact is that he was uh, very effective at influencing foreign leaders, much less effective at influencing his own <laughs> leaders. Uh, and he basically made enemies of much of the U.S. government because he was so anti-bureaucratic, such a maverick. You know, an example of that is, is what happened in the Philippines when, when General Lightning Joe Collins, this four-star U.S. general, went out there as ambassador, with, and, and he had a lot of anti-ZM views and, 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 and Lansdale's uh, thinking to just did not understand kind of the very unconventional challenge that the U.S. faced. And at, at one of their very first country team meetings at the embassy, Lightning Joe Collins was insisting on reducing the size of the South Vietnamese army. And Lansdale thought that was foolish because, yes, the South Vietnamese army was costly, but it was also necessary in order to pacify the countryside and to absorb these various sect militaries and, and create a stable state. Well, you know, Lightning Joe Collins uh, was not going to listen to a lot of objections from a mere colonel like Ed Lansdale. And he said, you know, I am the personal representative of the president of the United States, and you're out of order, mister. Well, you know, Lansdale at this point got up and said, well, you may be the personal uh, representative of the president of the United States, sir. But I am confident if the people of the United States heard what you were saying, they would disagree with you. And I'm here to speak up on behalf of the people of the United States. And he walked out the door. Now, you know, very few colonels can survive that kind of impertinence to a four-star general, and, and Lansdale got away with it because he had the support of the Dulles brothers, who were the real power brokers in Washington. But by the mid-1960s, he was devoid of top cover in Washington. He didn't have that kind of top high-level support. As a result of that, he was increasingly sidelined as, as the Vietnam War veered along its, its tragic trajectory. Well, let's talk about for this that for a second. I mean, the name of the book is The Road Not Taken. I think what sometimes people who see Lansdale's caricature forget is that he was an advocate of, of not putting in U.S. conventional troops. His idea was to help the local government so that they can fight these insurgencies themselves. What was that critical moment for not taking that road um, and for going for U.S. conventional troop involvement? That's a great question. And, and what I argue in the book is that that critical moment uh, was the military coup against CM that was backed by the U.S. and which occurred on November 1 of 1963 by a strange coincidence the very day that Ed Lansdale was, was forcibly retired from the Pentagon. Uh, in, you know, I think many people in, in hindsight, including Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon, saw that as being kind of the cardinal U.S. mistake because although ZM certainly had his faults, uh, he had some uh, legitimacy as a nationalist leader, and he was able to, to keep the government more or less together. Uh, despite growing opposition to his rule. Once he was overthrown, you had the military take over and you had one military coup after another uh, with all the military commanders getting replaced, the local district governors getting replaced, and just complete chaos within South Vietnam leading to virtual collapse of the state. And that's what led London Johnson in 1965 to decide that he had to send American combat troops 
And that was the only way to prevent uh, South Vietnam from falling. That was the last thing that Ed Lansdale ever wanted to see. He didn't want to see that half a million American troops thrashing around the jungles of Vietnam with their free fire zones and search and destroy missions and all the rest of it. But by that point, he was you know, completely inconsequential compared to the imperatives of the big green machine, the U.S. Army and General William Westmoreland. Uh, and so, you know, looking back on it, I think in, in some ways probably the the ZM coup in, in 1963 was, was the turning point. That's when South Vietnam lost any hope of internal stability and, and the war became Americanized by overthrowing ZM. We kind of took responsibility and ownership of, of Vietnam and that's what set the stage for the uh, horrors that followed. Could you walk that back even further? I seem to recall a scene um, from early 1961 with the arrival of the Kennedy administration when Lansdale's in Washington um, and has a brief meeting with the new defense secretary, Robert McNamara. Um, and, and if you could just talk briefly about that, because when I, when I read the book, it seemed to me that this was sort of a, a clash of spreadsheets versus hearts and minds and, and sort of the, the body bag spreadsheet account one. That's exactly right. This was, you know, uh, Robert McNamara, the new Secretary of Defense, former head of the Ford Motor Company, Harvard Business School graduate, uh, what would today be called a quant, somebody who who thought that numbers held the the truth to to understanding the world, uh, was completely at odds with Ed Lansdale, who was, you know, a UCLA dropout, uh, but had actually knocked around Asia for a lot of years and was much more in tune with the feelings of the people. And so, you know, when Lansdale... Uh, showed up in McNamara's office in, in 1961. He was carrying a load of these rusty muskets and and simple spears and other weapons that had been taken from the Viet Cong, caked in mud and blood, and that Lansdale had picked up on a recent trip to Vietnam. And he dumped those on McNamara's immaculate, spotless desk and said, you know, Mr. Secretary, these are the weapons being used by our enemies. Uh, they're not as sophisticated as our weapons and the people who are using them don't look anything like our soldiers. They wear black pajamas, and you wouldn't even think of them as as being soldiers, but they're very effective. In fact, they're licking our side because they have something that that our allies in in Vietnam lack, which is the power of an idea, of an ideal. And the only way we're going to beat them is with an ideal of our own. Uh, We're not going to bomb them into submission. Well, in hindsight, that was pretty wise advice. But, you know, McNamara was so arrogant, he could not see the wisdom of what Ed Lansdale was saying. And he just, you know, he told Lansdale to get his weapons off off his spotless desk and, and, and to leave his office. And he had very little regard for Lansdale because Lansdale did not think that you could reduce the entire conflict uh, to an arithmetic equation. So on that note, let's fast forward about a little over 40 years um, with David Petraeus and the surge in Iraq and the renewed interest in counterinsurgency. Um, where does Edward Lansdale legacy come in, either by name or at least in foundation in that? Well, there's no question that Ed Lansdale was one of the pioneers in, in counterinsurgency doctrine, which was later applied by David Petraeus in Iraq. And although Lansdale was not mentioned in the Army Marine Field Manual on Counterinsurgency. I know just from talking to to Petraeus, and we did an event about the book uh, recently, he said that he was quite familiar with Lansdale, and those were lessons that he took to heart about the need for political action, for governance, that those were the the key lines of operation. I would say some of those lessons have, in fact, become kind of conventional wisdom today, like this notion that Lansdale had, uh, that if you use too much force, you may wind up creating more enemies than you eliminate. That's kind of a paradoxical concept, but one that Petraeus tried to push into the army in in 2007. 
Uh, but I would say even today, I think we still probably have too much faith in the power of our technology. We think that with drone strikes and these special operations raids, uh, we can eliminate the insurgents. And I don't think we even to this day have a sufficient appreciation uh, for the kind of political action that, that Ed Lansdale advocated. And I think one area where we really fall short is in dealing with, with local allies, uh, because you know, Lansdale was, was really a leadership whisperer. He was somebody who knew how to get along with folks like Ramon Magsai Sai and No Din Ziem. And we've really lacked those kinds of advisors today in, in dealing with very difficult personalities like Hamid Karzai in Afghanistan or Nuri al-Maliki in, in Iraq. Uh, and, you know, if we just had somebody like an Ed Lansdale type who could get close to them and influence them in a positive direction, you know, we might be a lot better off today in, in Iraq and Afghanistan than we actually are. It's one of the things that interested me about the book on sort of a wonkish level that um, the way Lansdale operated for the CIA was almost outside of sort of the um, the station chief structure. Is there anything like that in the modern CIA so far as you know? Not really. I mean, again, Lansdale was a true maverick uh, who was an Air Force officer but wasn't a pilot or a navigator. And he was a CIA officer, but, you know, he wasn't really a case officer, didn't really believe in recruiting agents because – you know, he thought that was a waste of time. He believed in making friends, and he would just go to his friends and have his friends give him information instead of the kind of the traditional case over me- case officer methodology in the CIA of, you know, blackmailing somebody or paying them off into stealing secrets. That wasn't at all the Ed Lansdale mindset. And, you know, one of the tragedies in Vietnam is that when Ed Lansdale left at the end of 1956, where his role was to be uh, No Din Ziem's political advisor, he was not replaced. And the CIA state station in, in, in Saigon went back to kind of its comfort zone, which was instead of trying to influence Diem, they would pay a cleaning lady in the presidential palace to steal the contents of his wastebasket. Uh, and so as a result of that, Ziem's conspiratorial brother, No Din Nu, gained a predominant hold over him and, and pushed him in a more autocratic and ultimately counterproductive direction. Uh, but even today, I think this 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 is very deeply embedded in kind of the the corporate culture of the CIA that they don't really see themselves as being, uh, you know, political manipulators. They see themselves as being intelligence gatherers, people who steal other countries' secrets. And unfortunately, I can't really point to any branch of the government that really thinks it's as its role as being political advisors. I mean, we have military advisors for to be sure. But it's one thing to teach, you know, army units how to shoot straight. It's another thing to teach uh, local political leaders how to govern their countries. And that's, that's really, a, I think, an important gap in, in U.S. government capacity. Is there – I mean, Lansdale himself was this sort of professional extrovert. Um, but if we think about the training of whether it's CIA officers or of, um, or of military officers working in local countries, is there something that can be taught from the Lansdale model? Because, I mean, as we've talked about, language skills weren't that important. Certainly deep knowledge and time spent in country, but is there a Lansdale model for training other people? Well, the model is really empathy, uh, and that was really – Ed Lansdale's key skill, the fact that he would listen rather than lecture, because, you know, we as Americans love to go to other countries and tell them what to do, even if we know very little about the local country. Uh, we, you know, we send out envoys from Washington and they lay down their non-negotiable demands and, and you know, are, are very surprised to find that this usually backfires, whereas the Lansdale approach was very different, you know, really immerse himself in the culture, befriend local people, and you know, listen to them uh, instead of lecturing them. And then when they would go on, uh, 
and talk and, and, and often for a long time because, you know, ZM, for example, would, would go on these multi-hour monologues that would drive other Americans to despair. Lansdale would listen very patiently. And then he would say, if I understand what you're saying, it's X, Y, and Z. And then by so doing, he would essentially put his own words across as if they were the ideas of his interlocutor. And this is a very subtle but and, and very simple but yet very effective method of operating, but it's it's not the way that, that most Americans operate. And, and I think there is there's an important lesson that can be learned from Ed Lansdale, which applies to anybody, you know, personal relationships, business relationships, but it certainly applies to, to influencing foreign governments. So when you look across the past um, maybe 16 years post 9-11, do you see anyone in government, whether State Department, CIA, Pentagon, military, who comes close to sort of Lansdale's influence on or relationship with leaders in different countries? I don't think there's anybody who is as important today as that Lansdale was in the 1950s. I think there are certainly people in the U.S. government. Uh, who use uh, some of the Lansdale approach. And one of them is uh, this fellow Carter Malkazian, who uh, wrote a very flattering review of the book for for foreign policy. And Carter was somebody who was uh, an advisor for many years in Iraq and Afghanistan. And in some ways, did Ed Lansdale one better because he actually learned to speak the local languages. And I think he was very effective in his area of operations. But he did not rise to the level of mentoring a, a foreign head of state and I think one of the difficulties that we face is that we do have these Ed Lan- quirky kind of oddball Ed Lansdale types uh, who are interested in spending time in foreign countries and getting to know their customs and trying to influence them in a positive direction. Uh, but it's very hard for them to gain a predominant influence within the U.S. government, especially because we have these uh, very uh, cookie-cutter type of personnel policies where we love to rotate people all the time and uh, – You know, it just makes it very difficult for for somebody like Ed Lansdale uh, to exist today. But, you know, the reality is it was difficult for Ed Lansdale in the 50s and 60s. I mean, he was fighting a constant two-front battle, not just against the communists, but against his enemies within the U.S. government bureaucracy. One of the things that's striking for me, and as we also talked about a little bit earlier, is that, you know, Lansdale was trying to avoid the engagement of U.S. conventional troops. And when counterinsurgency theory reemerged in the mid-2000s, it was about U.S. troops using counterinsurgency theory, which seems so different than what Lansdale proposed. What do you think he would have made of the modern sort of application of counterinsurgency theory in Iraq and Afghanistan? Oh, he would have hated uh, the dispatch of hundreds of thousands of troops to Iraq and Afghanistan because he wrote, uh, and I quote him in the book, he wrote very critically of this kind of uh, 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 American tendency to export America abroad and to and to create this vast logistic system, these huge bases, uh, this this huge infrastructure, which becomes in military parlance a self-looking ice cream cone. And there was even more of that in Iraq and Afghanistan than there was in uh, in 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 Vietnam. I mean, Lansdale loved to operate very simply with small teams of advisors. But there have been, you know, places in, in recent years where we have applied the Lansdale model, I think, pretty successfully. And one of those is in Colombia, which which is one of the shining counterinsurgency success stories of recent years, uh, enabled by you know, U.S. Uh, military aid by relatively small teams of U.S. advisors, but also critically by having some great leadership in the Colombian government. And it was really President uh, Uribe in, in, in Colombia 
who turned around uh, the the military situation, and we were able to work very effectively with him. And I think that's ultimately going to be the secret in other countries, whether it's Afghanistan, Iraq, Somalia, Libya, Syria, you name the country. I think the ultimate solution is going to lie in in trying to uh, cultivate and work with uh, effective local leaders, but often that's that's very difficult to do. So I was going to end by asking you what happens with the love triangle of Pat, um, Ed Lansdale, and his wife, Helen. But actually, I think I'll leave that for people to read the book because it is a wonderful book. Um, I encourage everyone to pick up The Road Not Taken. Max, thank you for joining us today. Thank Until you. next time. Thanks, thank, Keith. Thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm Sharon Weinberger, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Katie Gardner and Brandon Martini. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.